Uh, if you are new with us, uh, we have this tradition, and we understand that not everybody here is a follower of Jesus. We know a lot of folks here just kind of come in and are sort of witnessing what's going on, observing from a distance. Maybe you were dragged here by somebody. But we have this thing, uh, and you don't feel compelled to have to stand, uh, but we really love when we actually take a moment to read the word at the beginning of a teaching. We would like to invite everybody to stand as sort of an act of reverence for what we believe is the living and active word. So if you would, just stand with me as I read the word. It's sadly not on the screen, so when I get to the end of the text, I'm going to say, um, this is the word of the Lord, and you respond with, thanks be to God. I'm going to read two texts this morning. Uh, one is Amos 5. This is a real pick-me-up first thing in the morning, especially when you're gathered in church. Uh, this is just, you're going to feel so warm and cuddly inside. I hate, this is God speaking, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifice and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. And then our second verse is Micah 8, or sorry, Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Yeah, so really uh, cheery. Uh, the, the Amos passage that we read first uh, is basically like, hey, sanctuary church would be the equivalent of this, of a prophet coming into our midst, uh, which doesn't tend to happen uh, very often. And they walk in and they go, hey, this whole thing you're doing with the music and the there is no other name and the synthesizers. And Andrew, that was a great part. But by the way, God hates it. God is actually really kind of ticked. Actually, all this stuff, all these like songs, it's like a, like a gross smell going up to heaven. Like, oh, thanks, buddy. Um, what was not happening here was they were not caring for the poor and the oppressed, for the fatherless, for the widow, for the most vulnerable. And so anything that was uh, filled with religious activity focused in at God uh, the fact that it was not um, becoming flesh and blood in a way that God cared most about. Uh, God needs to go to these first people who were commanded to be a blessing to the world. That's the beginning of the Christian story is the same as the Jewish story, right? It's the people of Israel blessed to be a blessing to the world. God begins with one tribe emerging from the beginning of the story of the world. Uh, and they're not fulfilling their mission in fact, they're caught up in sort of religious festivals and all the trappings. They've got the lights and the fog machines. But when push comes to shove, they're not caring for the poor. And God says it means jack. That's Andrew's translation. This is where I want to start today. A little bit heavy. Because as we're going into this series, actually as we're finishing up this series, we have one more week next week. One thing that popped up in my kind of surveying of folks about what are the kinds of subjects, because we could go in all sorts of different directions for this series, was what does it mean every day for me to actually live out this call 
to be just. So what I want to do this morning is outline a little bit of just like kind of basic, what does the Bible say about justice? Just a few basic things. Hopefully even for those who know like, okay, I should be just. Uh, There's going to be some new things uh, for you. Or at least some good reminders that will kind of pop out of like, oh, wow, this is really how particular and how, how strongly God feels about some things. Then I want to talk about our own apathy and despondency and our own uh, propensity to just move away from this and how overwhelmed we get. And then finally, I want to land us in talking about basically a change in our mindset that has a whole lot more to do with maybe you should buy coffee from a more like fair trade place or watch where you buy your chocolate or are you aware of where your clothes are made. I want to move uh, to a deeper posture. Not that those things are unimportant, but I want to talk about what it means um, in our heart to have a different kind of view when we think of what it is to be just. So a little theology, some Jewish, some ancient Hebrew words that I'm going to probably mispronounce a little bit, uh, just to unlock some stuff. You might think, what on earth does this have to do with me in the fall of 2014, sitting in Providence, Rhode Island? This has a whole lot to do, especially with where our city and where many of our campuses are at. So stay with me uh, through a little bit of unpacking here. The Hebrew word for justice is uh, misfat. Can you say that with me? Yeah, who knows if you're really saying it right. You don't know. Occurs in its various forms more than 200 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. Its most basic meaning is to treat people equitably, to treat people fairly. It means acquitting or punishing every person on the merits of the case, regardless of race race or social status. Anyone who does the same wrong should be given the same penalty. So it's about um, when you see something that is not happening fair, you do something about it. So I mentioned wanting to like be the first one, like pick up the phone and call the fire department. Or if there's ever an opportunity uh, for me to like call, uh, I don't know, a credit card company or to write some wrong with the cable bill or something, I'm like, yes. I will write this injustice. I think I've mentioned this before. I have this issue with driving through Providence where it's like, man, you're in a city. You should know how to like walk in a city. And maybe because I've spent like a little bit of time in Manhattan, this is like my justification, which is bogus by the way, but just letting you know where my head's at. Like I'm like, if you're crossing the road, not at a crosswalk, I'm going to scare you in my car. Like what is that? That is my reflex. I'm not saying I always do that. I'm just saying I usually do that. Like, my reflex is like justice. Or if like the light just turned green, right? And someone's about to walk across, like, dude, you're going to get yourself killed, man. No, just kidding. This happened the other day where I literally thought I was going to get gunned down. I keep looking around for my coffee. I keep putting it. Oh, there it is. Um, I, uh, I got really sick last night. And uh, yeah, so I'm really tired. So I, uh, I was pulling up to the intersection, and uh, I'm the first one in line, and uh, the light turns green, and I could tell that the guy in the other lane wanted to cross in front of me, right? Now, what's proper traffic rules? Unless I, like, flash my lights and say, go ahead, who has the right of way? This guy. Exactly. So I have the right of way, and um, yeah. I, uh, he decided to go. I could tell he was going to go. So instead of like, I could have just let it go, first of all, you know, a Jesus thing to do. Two, uh, I could have kind of like sped up a little, you know, maybe to just like scare him for a second or like beat my horn, right? Both of those would have been okay. I actually, as he's coming in this way, right, and turning, 
I actually turn right and toward him. So he's coming in like this. So it's, so we're at the light, and he starts to turn, and I go, and he just stops. And I'm thinking, like, he's going to keep going, and then I'll just, like, you know, swerve around and then keep going straight. This is a really not thought out plan. He stops. We're in a particular neighborhood that, I don't know, there have been some, it was a particular neighborhood we were in that this could, maybe the chances percentage-wise could go wrong more so than if I were in another area of the city, just statistically speaking, knowing this neighborhood pretty well. And he just stops and just gives me this look like, I'm going to kill you. And I'm just like, and like, and I still, as I'm driving away, don't even feel a tinge of guilt. I'm like, yeah, that guy. <laughs> Misfat is about giving people what's right. So, so it would be the take this situation and actually apply it to something real and serious and not some self-centered, you know, I don't know, really entitled issue that I have with like monitoring all traffic rules in the city of Providence. Uh, which is ironic, right? Because when I'm crossing the road in front of like a place where there's no crosswalk, I'm like, and someone beeps the horn, I'm like, dude, chill out, man. Gosh, there's people dying overseas. Like, I'm not even like fair, like at all. Like, it's massive hypocrisy. Um, that's what I was confessing during our confession time. The issue with this, this word, not the issue, what this drives home is when you see something wronged, you write it. There's an action, a really direct action, treating people equitably, punishing a person or recorrecting when something has gone wrong, giving people their rights. Deuteronomy 18, in fact, directs the priests of the tabernacle, again, this is the ancient Jewish story, that they should be supported by a certain percentage of people's income. Misfat, then, is giving people what they are due. That's the word that's used here. They're due this. They earn this. This is what's just, is that they are provided for. Uh, whether it's punishment, whether it's protection, or whether it's care. People are being treated unequitably. You sh they should be treated equitably. This would be the, the story of, of Scripture. And, and, uh, and that happens. Uh, this is why if you look at every place the word is used in the Old Testament over and over again, Misfat describes taking care of the cause of the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, and the poor. These are the most vulnerable in this society. In an agrarian society, lots of farmers. Society, there are four groups that had no social power, and these were those groups. These are the people who were only days away from starvation if there was a famine, if there was an invasion, if there was any sort of social unrest. These were the people that were, people that were most at risk. Today, uh, you might think of the refugee, uh, the migrant worker, the homeless, uh, maybe many single parents, uh, elderly parents. These are the folks that were most at risk if something goes south. There's the least. This is why our society, wherever you land politically, this is why the discussion about things like welfare, safety net, all that stuff comes uh, from a place of going, who are the most vulnerable that if things go wrong, we care for? We engage and we provide protection for. And we as a society recognize that some of our money should go to that or shouldn't, and there's a different way we should care for them. But either way, wherever you're at on the fiscal political spectrum, usually, if you are at least a Christian, you seek to figure out how do we provide for the most vulnerable. 
So the misfat or justness of a society, according to the Bible, is evaluated by how it treats these groups. Any neglect, any neglect to the needs of these groups is a violation of justice. God loves and defends those with the least economic and social power. With the least economic and social power. This is throughout the scriptures. So second point in regards to unpacking this word justice and the way we see it used um, why should we be concerned about the vulnerable, vulnerable ones? I am having a hard time speaking today. Why we should be uh, concerned with the most vulnerable is because God is concerned about them. It's striking to see how often God is actually introduced as the defender of these vulnerable people. So if I were going to a speaking event, so for instance at Q on Thursday, I'm hosting it. So someone, uh, I'm going to get up and introduce people. They've given me a bio, like a byline of how they want to be introduced. So I'd like to welcome to the stage, uh, and, and I'll introduce my, my buddy Todd Mackey speaking. is the, the, the guy who uh, is a co-owner of Bolt Coffee. And he's given me some things that he, wants to, that he wants me to say because they're important. They communicate what he cares about. They communicate the sorts of things that he wants to be known for, right? He's a father. He's a husband. He's a follower of Jesus. He's an entrepreneur. Uh, he cares about artisan craft, like things like coffee. So these are the things that he cares about and the things he wants to be known for. This is significant and that God so often, and I don't have a count for you, but you can just do a cursory overview of the way that God is introduced in the Old Testament, and it has to do with the vulnerable. This is the God of the oppressed. This is the God in Psalm 68, 4 to 5, uh, introduced as a father to the fatherless, a defender of the widows. That's how he is introduced. This is what this God cares about. This is the bent that we see in Scripture towards the most vulnerable. This isn't that God doesn't care for you, but God is not introduced in the Scripture uh, as, you know, the God of the upwardly mobile uh, the God of the socially accessible, accessible, the God of the middle class white person. This is not how God is introduced. God is introduced, hey, this is the God of the oppressed. And for some reason, that is incredibly important uh, for these first people hearing about what is this God like and helping understand that, that we need to own, that we need to acknowledge, and we need to let sink in. So one last word, um, and we'll come back to some of this theology in a bit. What is difficult, I think, for us when we come to engaging um, the pictures in Scripture about who God is, is that we are so keen and ready to point out the fact um, that this God cares for everyone, that God loves everyone, that God so loved the whole world, which is so true, that he gave his only son, is that that doesn't translate then for us as we're supposed to receive that identity, recognize that we are forgiven, and then right take part in reconciling, bringing people back, demonstrating that love, loving people in return. We're told that in the scriptures that uh, to truly love God is to love your neighbor. There's really some mysterious relationship between those two. You can say you love God all you want, but if you are not loving your neighbor, uh, you're basically a liar, is what it says in John and other places. But that when it comes to the most vulnerable, when it comes to the people who are at risk, God is spe uh, spends special attention to them. 
And I think a lot of it has to do with just the simple understanding of grace. Do you understand what you have been saved from? Do you understand how you have been loved? And then when you look around and see those who are most at risk, do you have a sense of entitlement or do you have a posture of grace? So I could land this sermon. I could have landed this in about five minutes and say, God cares about justice. We should do a better job, church, caring for the poor. Yes, of course, donate a little more money. Maybe uh, adopt a child. Find a way to get involved in after-school arts or homework club. And all of these things would be really, really wonderful disciplines. I don't want to de-emphasize any of that. That is all great stuff. Well, for us, I want to see a mindset shift in our day-to-day posture. And this has been something that's been a real struggle for me, even just explaining my stupid story about driving a car, as having a posture of grace, moving away from entitlement, and re-looking at how the Bible talks about justice in the everyday. That, like, as small as we are in every little moment, what does it mean to live justly? So a few things I think that are hard for us. First, we're really busy. We're really, really busy. You want me to download, even have enough time to download an app that might tell me, like, all right, I can look up where my clothes are from when I walk through, like, Nordstrom or whatever and find out, oh, that brand is a good brand. I don't even have time to do that. Really? Like, some of you are like, oh, there's no way and no way I'm willing to, like, relook at or rethink about the way in which I buy my whatever, coffee, chocolate. You want me, I only have barely enough money. You want me to figure out ways to give to the church? You want me to find out ways to give beyond that? I have absolutely no time to do X, Y, or Z. We're busy. Another thing, though, about I think our culture and where it's at, and this isn't a generational or an age thing, I think this is literally our culture, is we're curious. We have more access to information than any culture before. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Right? You are expected in some way to have an opinion about every injustice that's happening. Do you guys feel that pressure sometimes? Right, it's like three hours after the events in Ferguson happen and you are expected to have an opinion and form sort of a really concise thing and don't you dare say something that's out of line with whatever the main narrative is at the time. This is the pressure that we feel, right? Something comes up immediately, some sort of injustice that we don't even vaguely understand and the immediate pressure is we need to have information about this but yet we truly are curious. I think there's something innate that even as though we, are, we recognize the sin that is born into each of us, this propensity to move away from life, being made in the image of God, I think calls us to long for justice no matter where we are at on the spectrum of holiness. We long to see things put back together, even if it's just put back together in the way we want. We're curious. I think in general, and I think maybe more so maybe a couple years ago, this may be more of a generational thing is we're hopeful. I think, I think a lot of us are actually really hopeful that we can take part in change. Uh, and, and I think above all, though, we're distracted. I think we're busy. I think we're curious. I think we're hopeful. I think we're very distracted when it comes to thinking about what does it mean to live a just life every day, to care for the most vulnerable, to be aware of the brokenness and the poor and the needy in our community. We're overwhelmed with information. We read about this stuff Every single day, we're bombarded with 16 different opinions. We get really distracted and overwhelmed, and then we just don't know what to do with it. We're caught in our own hypocrisy all the time. Right? Anyone feel this? I just want to have, like, honest moment. I don't mean to bum anybody out. Like, just, do you recognize the places where we're just, we miss it? We care about one thing, and then that actually, if we're really consistent, we don't realize. My favorite, this is just an example, uh, is the is the anti, I was talking to my friend Heather the other day about this, is the anti-corporate, right, like, like 
borderline, like, like hipster-leaning hippie. You know, I don't know what was put him in a neighborhood. West Sider, right, who is outspoken about so many political causes, who smokes an American spirit cigarette, which is owned by Marlboro. Anyone see the problem with this? It drives me mad. It's like I will literally had a conversation with somebody and, and they are just going off about everything that is wrong with corporate America and down with capitalism. I'm like, okay, it's an interesting thought. We're having this great discussion. And then they light up a cigarette. Oh my gosh! You are single-handedly supporting one of the most evil things that our world has produced in the West. Oh, and then, of course, they drop the butt on the ground. And you're littering. Oh, my gosh. Another great example um, would be, and, and I'm, I could easily get into a lot of hot water. So if you've been, like, tuning out and you're just about to tune back in, just stay tuned out because you're going to take this out of context. This is not... I am not about to express an opinion one way or the other on a particular issue. You ready for this? This just illustrates the hypocrisy that we feel. This was a meme. I would have put it up on the screen, but again, I, they're not on the screen. Um, anyone know like, what was going on with the whole Chick-fil-A fiasco, right? The owner uh, wanted to support traditional marriage uh, and just was very clear about that, of what, what he stood. So a lot of people protested who didn't share his belief on the rights and, and how we should make sense of the confusing world that is sexuality in our culture. Uh, and so someone put out a meme, and I, I'm pretty sure what side they were on, but it was just interesting of just, again, pointing out this hypocrisy. This is how it went. You won't eat Chick-fil-A because the CEO believes in traditional marriage. So... When will you stop buying gas because Saudi Arabia believes homosexuality is punishable by death? Oh, shoot. <laughs> My point in mentioning that is that we are caught in a world where the more and more we are aware of the injustices that exist around us, Wherever you side on whatever issue, as you're making sense of, I want this world put back to rights. I want love to win the day. I want love in Jesus' name to win the day. I want renewal and restoration to happen. And you drive a car that is fueled by gas, that is participating in some of the most broken systems that we have in the world right now that wars are revolving around. Right? It was really nice 60, 70, 80 years ago when we knew less of this. I can find out right now where my Nikes were made, right? So many people protested the fact that their Nikes were made in sweatshops that Nike actually went about changing a lot of things about what they did, right? We go, yes. And then we go and buy another shoe company that's just, just miserable or evil or we can find some other place of hypocrisy. We're distracted. We're really busy. We get overwhelmed. There's so many different things. Oh, my gosh, just hearing that, you're like, well, do I drive my car now? What do I do with the bus? Like some of you who like have like justice anxiety. I just coined that, hashtag justice anxiety, copyright. <laughs> it's my new book. All right, we have this. This is a problem because, and then what happens is, is we get despondent. I have found. I'm sure not everyone does. Some of you just trudge on. You know, like you're Amy Poehler's character in Parks and Rec. You're like, nothing will keep me down. But for the most part... I watch that show too often. For the most part, we tend to then dial out. I can't keep track of what thing to do, when, where. I have my own struggle with this. Uh, in particular, I would love to sit here and convince you all to become vegetarians. I could make a strong argument, a moderately okay argument from Scripture, a really strong argument from an environmental standpoint, like really, really strong. Uh, and from a health, I could probably like knock it out the park. I'm just saying. 
But as somebody who says, like, yes, I'm a vegetarian, I actually really believe I probably should, like, go vegan, but I'm not, I'm not sure. And Well, if it was all, like, on a farm, like, and I went out and I killed the cow, then I actually would feel different. And then it starts to nuance a little bit. But at the end of the day, I'm like, all right, no, I still know that for the most part, environmental impact, I don't want to eat meat. Right? This is, this is kind of where I end up landing. And then with one just, just swoop of the plate, my entire convictions come tumbling down. Next slide. Yeah, it all falls apart so fast. Be vegetarians. Buffaloing? Oh, okay. Like even that. Like I'm like, all right, I have like an hour before I have to be back at church. I could probably run to Trinity Brewhouse and... You can take that off the screen now. <laughs> we become paralyzed. We become, we're hopeful, and yet we become paralyzed. If we go back to Scripture and sort of a little of this overview that we're doing, we must have a strong concern for the poor, but there is more to the biblical idea than just righting a wrong in a direct way with misfat. We get more insight when we consider this, this second Hebrew word that's used, and this has deep relevance to us, and this is where I want to land this plane. This second Hebrew word is translated as being just. It's usually transferred in the scripture, actually, and tell me if you've ever heard this phrase before, being righteous. The word is sadaqa, sadaqa. I was literally like looking up pronunciations before I came up here because it's pronounced three different ways. It refers to a life of right relationships. When most people see this word righteousness in the Bible, you think of what? Fasting, praying, like pure, having a pure sexual ethic. Uh, we tend to think of like the day-to-day just sort of like, am I being like a righteous person? Am I being good Day-to-day living, this word in regards to the Bible, the the small as we are moments, is when a person conducts all relationships in family and society with fairness, generosity, and equity. These two words, sadaqa and misfat, are brought together all the time, like constantly. The two words roughly correspond to what some have called primary and rectifying justice. Primary justice and rectifying. So rectifying justice is misfat. Again, it means punishing wrongdoers and caring for the victims of unjust treatment. Good thing. And then there's primary justice or sadaka, which is behavior that, if it was prevalent in the world, would make this first kind of rectifying justice unnecessary because everyone would be living in right relationship to everyone else. It's like a preemptive strike. Therefore, Though Sadaka is primarily about being in a right relationship with God, right? This is this natural relationship. If I'm living rightly with God, this is naturally, obviously, I hope, going to, you can see how this spills over into every action that we do. Rectifying justice or misfat in our world would mean prosecuting the men who batter and exploit and rob uh, women. It could mean putting pressure on the local police department until they respond to the calls of crimes in a particular neighborhood. And, but primary justice, so Sadaka, is taking the time to personally build in disciplines to meet the needs of the handicapped, the elderly, the hungry. It's establishing rather regular rhythms of being a part of living rightly, of seeing the world through a lens of grace and generosity 
And when these two words are tied together, as they are, I think it's like three dozen times, the English expression that best conveys the meaning is social justice, is social justice. That's Tim Keller's observation. So in the scriptures, gifts to the poor are called acts of righteousness, as in Matthew 6, 1 to 2. Not giving generously, then, is not stinginess, but it's unrighteousness. We tend to think, oh, if I'm not giving, I'm just being a little stingy or ungenerous. According to the scriptures, it means you're not, like, following God's law. You're actually violating a relationship with God. It goes back, again, to what it means to love God and love neighbor and these two things tied together. In the book of Job, we see Job call every failure to help the poor a sin. Every failure in his regular rhythms of life to help the poor, offensive to God's splendor, it says in 31, 23, and in 28, deserving of judgment. Job basically ends up asserting, and we've talked about this before, that it would be a sin against God to think of his goods as belonging to himself alone. We are to think about the things that we have, the opportunity we have to bless, not as better than, but grace. Look at what I have been given. This goes against everything in our culture because we've earned our way to college. You've earned the money in your bank account. You've really earned your way. And all we have to do for a moment is look at the Twitter feed of the Anglican bishop who is in northern Iraq right now who is under persecution. And we reminded that actually you were born in this country and that in and of itself is grace. The very... Just, just the, the, the fact that you were born here puts you a leg above so many other people. You didn't do anything to deserve that. So please stop, the scriptures are saying. Please stop pretending like you're entitled. Please stop living in such a way that you feel like, well, they clearly didn't deserve, or they didn't own up. Many of you, we've talked about this, right? Many of you come from families where you had functional adults who were raising you, right? Just functional. I'm not even talking about like loving they like, like, we're okay, and they didn't, like, hit you. Like, that is a leg up on so many in our city. And we act like, well, look what I did. I mean, I, got, I was able to go to college, and I was able to make this money. I was able to do this. I was able to, dude, just the fact that you were raised the way that you do is, was grace. And you need to look around, not as an entitled person who maybe will think about if they really, you know, like, earn their keep, then you'll bless, or then you'll care for the poor. Like, no, 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 where to see things through the lens of generosity and grace, not entitlement. We have been blessed to be a blessing. And so prosperity brings with it this temptation. Like we are, so many of us are prosperous in some way when we compare to the rest of the world. There's a temptation to forget not only one's past poverty and, and, and the places that we've been rescued out of our own sin, but to forget that God is the one who did this. Entitlement leads to becoming immune to the suffering of others because I got what I deserve and so apparently did they. And so what happens is, is we end up losing the plot. We end up losing a, a relationship and a connection with a God who introduces himself as I am the God of the oppressed. I am the God of the brokenhearted. I am the God of the fatherless and the widow and the most vulnerable. If you're trying to live a life in accordance with the scripture, the concept and call to justice is inescapable. There's a Harvard study that came out recently that said most folks who are most active on social media in declaring uh, like for justice causes, uh, that, let me actually quote this accurately here, 
Researchers, I'm sorry, it wasn't Harvard, it was University of British Columbia, compared how volunteers behaved after public displays of support, like Facebook liking or pin wearing or private actions, and private actions like signing a petition. So people making public displays towards justice were less likely to donate money or time at a later date. You guys all get that? Most folks, according to the study, who are most public and loud with their signing a petition, posting about a cause, posting their like viewpoint, they have a really edgy comment about whatever it is, the cause of the day, are actually least likely to actually get involved and to step into the flow and put into practice this call of justice. And as followers of Jesus, I can't speak for the rest of the world. I can't speak for those outside of the church. But for us, as Christians, of anybody in this world, we like get up here every week and go, God, I confess that, man, I'm broken, that my propensity to follow the way of death is real. I need you. Forgive me. Set me free. We come to the table every week almost. We take the bread and we dip it in the cup, and this is the kind of love and the identity that we have rested in Jesus no matter what we do. And then we turn around and we're cutting people off in traffic. We have convictions that God's given us about how we eat and we're caved to buffalo wings. I mean, these are like silly examples, but let's like ratchet it up, right? If I can't be faithful in the small things, how can I be faithful in the big ones? We know this. And what God is calling us to is a life, a daily rhythm, where we're looking at those around us through the lens of grace and generosity. What we need at the end of the day is a mindset change. We need to see every person as a person, a child of God and not a project. We need to see others around us, especially those that fit into these groups as elevated in God's eyes. I just need to own that. We need to see how our entitlement robs us of daily opportunities to do justice here and now, just the simple things. If you're somebody who is so loud about your opinions about X, Y, or Z, and you are passionate about justice, and you're just doing a miserable job loving your spouse, let's, let's circle back. <laughs> Right? This isn't about just calling out the hypocrisy that every single one of us has. This is about stepping into the freedom and love of Jesus that we have to actually put aside, put aside our propensity to let go of our propensity to move away from life, to move into the posture of death, to move into one that is entitled and greedy and stingy and away from a generous lifestyle, away from the heart and character of God and to walk into a better life. A God who said, I've come to give you life and life to the full. This is actually a better way to live, to be generous. This is actually how you were designed. This is actually what it is to live into the new identity that you have inherited if you're here and you are a Christian. This, God wants to change the world in this way. Small as we are in the everyday decisions, our opportunity to shift our mindset to the one of Jesus is real is real and is beautiful and is powerful and it will change more than just the least of these, the poor, like whatever the image you have of like the poor person. Like there are folks in our community who are the least of these. I know this because I've met with many of them this week. They're hurting. They're probably sitting next to you. Like we have this propensity to begin to think of the other and not those that are in our midst. We have to think of, well, I'll do justice towards the big cause. But when it comes to being filled with grace and love and generosity for the people closest to us, let's just start there. This isn't an excuse to stop practicing generosity. We need both. 
But this is a, a call for us, as small as we are, in the everyday to step into the opportunities, the daily opportunities to live justly. Rabbi Tarfan says this, do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now. Love mercy now. Walk humbly now. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. The world is changed by ordinary Christians in ordinary churches living out their faith one day at a time. One day at a time. In our home groups this week, um, we talked about a story where the disciples um, allowed all these sort of obstacles to get in the way of trusting that God could use them. Trusting that God um, would call them into an act of faith to care for people around us. Uh, and this week at the home groups, which I encourage you to go to, even if you weren't there last time, we're going to talk a little bit about, like, we encouraged everybody to go out and to, and to, to practice this, to say, okay, God, where is there an opportunity for justice? Where is there an opportunity to bless? Where is there an opportunity to join you in caring for? And uh, two of the stories that I've heard, I don't have time to get into, but, man, they were the most unassuming, tiny stories that shifted the temperature in the household of these two people. They were just like moves of like, I realize that God is like at work and calling me to love my husband in a way that I have not been doing. And this was somebody who was deeply convicted about a number of major like social things going on in the world right now. And it was just like a perfect analogy. It's been kind of ringing in my head or perfect example. It's been ringing in my head through the whole sermon. It's like to be able to step in and to be open to what God is doing here and now. Where for you this week, this day ahead of us, are there places where God is calling you to care for the most vulnerable and maybe the most vulnerable are just the folks right in front of you. Where do you feel entitled? Where is the communion table not real in your life? Where is the sense of like you've been rescued and saved by amazing grace? Broken pieces that have been scattered that God wants to put back together and has put back together and he brought you to this church and you're in community and you're hearing teachings and if it's all just information and good feelings then it's not becoming what God wants it to become. God isn't done with you yet. God isn't done with me yet. And God isn't done with us yet in the cause and the call to be a just church in our city. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that Like that opening piece of scripture that we read, Lord, I, I, I kind of feel it now more than ever. Is I don't want to be a church, Lord. None of us want to be a community, a group of individuals who you look down at our songs and you look down at our religious ceremony and you look down at our well-curated graphics on whatever it is and you go, yeah, no, <laughs> where you look down and you see that we are not caring for the things that you care most about, where we are not aware of your saving grace. Lord, I pray as we come to the communion table now, you make us aware of your grace. How while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still broken, 
you came and rescued us. There is absolutely nothing that we have in this world that we can claim as our own. Even you give us the ability to create wealth. You gave us the ability, Lord, to be... uh, to, 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 to succeed, to be upwardly mobile, to be whatever it is, Lord. There's nothing we claim as our own as followers of Jesus. Lord, I ask you that you convict the Christian of, of 30 years today, and I ask that you convict the person who is on the fence of saying yes to you, that you would remind us all of your great grace and generosity towards us, and might that just make its way into actual detailed things that we need to put um, our hands to this week, like actual relationships that we need to remove the lens of entitlement and adopt the lens of generosity where we shift our mindset from those people over there to to all of your chosen people. Lord, where we uh, don't just call and cry out for misfit, we don't just cry out for remedying the brokenness in the world, Lord, but we stepped into a a daily pattern of justice, a righteous walk with you, one that you say is the best possible way to live, one that you say is where, like, like (laughs) where the joy is, where the freedom is, where the life is. So as we come to the table, Lord, I, I ask you for all of that. I ask you for all of that, for renewed hearts, for new confessions, for vision for our community, for vision for our home groups, vision for our campuses, vision of what it means to walk justly. In your name we pray. Amen. We have a lot of people who have been showing up to church this fall. It's really wonderful. and It makes the communion time a little bit longer than normal. I want to encourage you... um, as easy it can be to be distracted as you're kind of waiting in line to come and take the bread and the wine. I want to encourage you to take that time, whether it's to sing along, whether it's to simply close your eyes, to allow uh, these words that, we've, that I've spoken, the stuff that's truly of God, the places of conviction that you may feel, and allow this uh, to really just stir in you, again, just actual specific things this week that you need to put your, uh, your eyes to, your hands to. Don't leave here uh, the person that you, you came in. Allow God. Maybe it's for you today. You just need to open yourself up to God in a new way and say, okay, God, I'm open. I'm open to what you might have in terms of shifting the way that I'm doing things. Or, or for a lot of you, and this is the kind of call I want to give, is for a lot of you, uh, you've never said yes to Jesus. You've never really experienced the grace of God. Like you, you sort of have this sense of it or you cognitively believe in it, but you just need to say, okay, God, I, I want to trust that I'm loved regardless of what I do. I want to trust that your grace is so good that all of my junk in my past can disappear, that you will forgive it and set it free and set me on a new path again and again and again and grow me in you because that's where this has all got to start. We can't be a just, generous people of our own power. We will become burned out, cynical activists. And frankly, that's all I see nowadays. I want to be passion, young at heart, justice folks, world changers. 
And so might we, as we come to the communion table and recognize the Jesus Christ who has died on the cross for our sins, who has broken himself open and poured himself out, the ultimate act of love and healing for the world, that we as a church and as individuals, small as we are, would break ourselves open and pour ourselves out for the healing of our city. So if you're on this half of the room, come up the middle aisle, take the bread and dip it in the cup. Uh, there's gluten-free options at both uh, stations. And if you're on that side of the middle, uh, come up the uh, middle aisle and, uh, and take it back there and then circle around the back. Uh, and the band is going to sing a song here. We'll take our offering and be on our way this morning. Let me pray for the elements. Lord, pray for uh, this moment. Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see you and we might experience your love in this sacred act that you've called us to participate in. In your name we pray. Amen.